Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And this week, we are back from our summers. We're going to talk about our summers, but first, we're going to recap some of our bigger episodes from the spring and give you some updates on those. So consider it kind of like a special double episode. And we're on! Yay! Happy September! I know, I can't believe it's September. And we're back. We're recording in real time. I know. I mean, for those of you who didn't know, we were cruising this summer. We recorded a lot of those episodes early. We are back having spent the summer with our children. And again, we're alive still. So this is good. We made it with children and all this sort of stuff. We have so much stuff to talk about. We really wanted to recap what has happened since we recorded some of the episodes, because I don't know how else we can catch up on all this stuff. So this will be a summer recap episode. We will talk about what happened in updates regarding prior episode topics. We'll talk about our own summers, what we're going to do this fall, and we'll ask for some of your input too. So listen up. You don't want to miss anything. And with that, let's get started. So do you remember episode 18, Who Controls History? Well, there turns out that there's more to that story as well. So a brief recap, Who Controls History talked a little bit about education and what were state standards for education, what topics were included, what topics were not included. So on August 28th, the Washington Post released an article that discussed the various vast discrepancies in state education standards, especially when it comes to discussing slavery. And as we've discussed on past episodes, this is important because we need to understand the role of slavery in order to understand its impact, even 150 years later after the Civil War, because it really has impacted basically all of our societal structures. So this article focused, and by the way, we will link these articles in our show notes and email. Yes, so please subscribe to our email list if you haven't done so already. But back to this article, it focused on Texas in particular. And it said, when the Texas State Board of Education met in 2010, 145 years after the Civil War ended, it decided to set new social studies standards for teaching about America's deadliest conflict. One contentious issue before them, how central was slavery to causing the war? As the board saw it, not very. Slavery, one board member said at the time, was a, quote, side issue to the Civil War, which begs the question, what was that war really about? So the board decided on new standards because that's what you can do when you're the Board of Education. So the state's roughly 5 million students would be taught that the cause of the war was, in order, sectionalism, states' rights, and slavery. And I just... Mm. Because if you were going to say it was economics or, you know, because so much of the economy was based on slavery and therefore there was some financial reason for it, I might be able to buy into that time. But what is sectionalism? I don't even understand what they're talking about. And it pisses me off because I get math and science. There's an agreed upon national set of standards for those topics. But why is there not for social studies in this country? Why, you know, in different states, do kids who grow up in public school learn about slavery differently? You know, because the implications of slavery are so, as you said, critical to what our social structures are now, what our inherent beliefs are about race are in this country, about people's financial act. I mean, there's so much. So it's killing me that public school kids in the U.S. learn about slavery differently based on where they grow up. 
Yeah, and the article was very specific about how these differences appear. For example, Massachusetts, which is sort of on one end of the spectrum, mentions slavery 104 times in its history and social studies framework. However, Louisiana standards for K-12 social studies refer to slavery four times. So that's 100 times less if you're counting. And Idaho's guidelines mention slavery only twice. Few states, if at all, mention the enslavement of Native Americans in their standards, despite growing scholarship that points to it being widespread in early colonial America and continuing throughout much of the 19th century, particularly in Western states and territories. However, if you look at Massachusetts as being on one end of the spectrum, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania is really on that end of the spectrum because in their public school districts, students must take a year of African-American history in high school, which is a requirement that makes the district a rarity in the United States. And this class follows the experience of African-Americans beginning with a section on life in Africa before the transatlantic slave trade took about 12 million people, right? And then it covers the experience of slavery in America beginning in 1619 through to the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the Civil Rights era. And I really like that because unlike the dehumanizing that happens, like once you start, if you introduce Black history as it started with slavery in the United States, well, then you're already starting with people who've been dehumanized. But if you follow their experience as real human beings, like they actually are in their own cult, like in their culture before slavery began, then that's a whole different respect or viewpoint, basically, that these kids in high school are being taught. Right. And the failure to educate Americans about slavery in this really hard hitting, introspective way reinforces these divisions in society. And Bethany Jay, who's an associate professor at Salem State University and the co-editor of Understanding and Teaching American Slavery, really believes this. She says that the nation finds itself riven by divisive issues such as Confederate statues, kneeling athletes, prison reform, and birthright citizenship because there is a lack of context for how all of those issues tie into slavery itself or its immediate aftermath. And that's the fault of how we've been talking about this issue, or I guess not talking about this issue in our schools and our museums and our public life and our culture. True. Okay. You got to talk about this plantation tour thing because I was blown away. Me too. Yes. So there was an article that came out just a couple of days ago about plantation tours and how in trying to incorporate and be more open about the history of slavery in these plantations, the groups that are running these tours are getting a lot of pushback from white visitors saying they don't want things like slavery thrown in their face. And white visitors to plantations, incidentally, according to this article, make up about 85 to 90 percent of their visitors. So you have people who are really trying to educate visitors on the actual history of things that happened at a plantation, but people are who are visiting are really not open to that, which is totally confusing to me in a lot of ways. Because what else were the plantations were based on slavery? Well, apparently they were based on sectionalism, states' rights, and then slavery. So, and even trying now to get that accurate history out, they're still facing a lot of pushback, even when directly confronted with the physical evidence of that. So I thought that was amazing. But it's interesting to me because that really makes it feel like maybe as a society now, we're taking everything so personally. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel horrified at the history of what this country did or the current state, like the repercussions of the divisiveness based on the foundations of slavery. But what is wrong with distancing ourselves a little bit and be like, holy smokes, this stuff happened in our country. You don't have to take personal responsibility, but you have to be able to sit with some discomfort and not be like, 
I can't deal with this uncomfortable, right? It is a reality of what happened here and we can't blow it over. And why can't we distance ourselves? What I mean, I think it would be helpful if we could just listen and just see it and see it as separate as an institution as opposed to personalizing everything. I totally agree because I think our instinct as humans is to sort of hide or push away things that are painful, right? And on a variety of levels. And if we take it less as an individual insult and more or an individual provocation maybe and more of an attempt to understand how things are the way that they are and how we can move forward from this. I think that's where the learning happens. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it. It's the curiosity as opposed to the defensiveness. Let's be curious. Let's ask questions. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's ways to do that. So we raise kids in that way too. And maybe that'll help set the foundation because to be honest, I don't remember much of what I learned in school straight through to college. Like, I feel like I really turned my brain on in college and that was great. And I'm grateful for that experience. But I do think that what we teach our kids or how we, you know, the books we have around the house or the conversations that we have can start provoking their curiosity around these topics as well without it being this big deal, like it's thrown in your face or, you know, that sort of way. And I think we talked about at-home learning through elementary school. I feel like my personal belief is that like a lot of the kids' educations happens in the home when they're little, not just pre like school age, but even in elementary school, I feel like kids can come home, they talk to their parents, what your family does is part of how the foundation of their lives are set up to be. And so I feel like there's some books. I mean, I don't know what you have in your house. At this stage, we love the Who Is or What Is series of books. And we had not to be typical non-people of color, but like we really focused a lot on Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. The kids loved reading about that, which is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of people who've been involved in the fight for freedom or equality. And then Goodnight Rebel Girls, Rad American Women A to Z. I feel like they really like discuss people who've done good and they talk about the aftermath of slavery or inequality and why people have been fighting. I don't know. I didn't see any books on slavery that are appropriate for children. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my boys are still six and five. So we have gotten into some of the conversations, but not a ton of them. Well, not in depth, but we really like Young, Gifted and Black. It's sort of an anthology of variety of people throughout history. And we also love stories of boys who dare to be different because those also contain some key civil rights figures in there as well. That's awesome. And I guess the upshot of this is know what your state teaches. What does your school district teach? How many times is slavery mentioned in your kids, you know, education? And how do you support that to provide a well-rounded education about the realities of the history of our country so that the kids aren't left being like uneducated or uninformed and then show up being really sensitive when they go to a plantation tour and are like, I, I'm not comfortable with this because this isn't my reality. Because we can teach them and we can supplement that at home if we need to. Yeah. Agreed. So next episode, follow up. Yeah, so we had our double sliding right from slavery to white supremacy. We had our double episode about the history of the KKK in the United States. So if you haven't caught those yet, episodes 11 and 12, go back and check those out. What we couldn't foresee, however, was that for a period of time, you could donate to a branch of the KKK on PayPal, actually. Special perk. 
of, yes, our ability to donate via our phones or computers. So PayPal suspended an account used to raise funds by one of the U.S.'s largest white supremacist groups six days after it was first flagged by an anti-bigotry campaigner. So this was noticed on August 24th. It took PayPal six days to take down the account for the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And they had promoted this account via a donation page on its website. So it took a lot of pressure, actually, for PayPal to take that account down. But that account, allegedly, by as stated by the Loyal White Knights, said that they were seeking funds to help pay for the postage of newsletters and other materials to its supporters and to organize public rallies. It linked through to a PayPal page that did not specifically reference the KKK, but said that its purpose was to give a, quote, donation blessing for the cause. PayPal does have a stated anti-hate policy, but spokespeople did not at that time provide comment as to why it took so long to remove this page. It's interesting to me that that's a long time. Because on one hand, yeah, I think it is six days, like you should be able to go bling out. But surely PayPal had to do its due diligence because they they obviously masked the cause, just saying donation blessing for the cause. Anyway, I'm not defending any of this. I'm glad. I'm just still shocked. I mean, way to go use technology. But I think it's important to know what is out there on social media, what is out there on PayPal, what are you donating to, what is really going on, because this is happening in all the mainstream stuff. Facebook, they did a huge crackdown on hate speech, but they can't monitor everything. So, I mean, as you say, the upshot is, you know, if you see something, say something and report it through the channels and be vocal about it. If you really think that it's not right, you've got to say something. For what it's worth, I did have a question for you. We talked about it offline before we talked about this episode in particular, but I did have the question of like, how much does that interfere with free speech? Because I would have said, well, then could PayPal have shut down an account that I was, you know, or a link to a site that I was raising for some other cause? And so how do we know that that was okay for PayPal to shut that down? How do we know that they can't argue against PayPal's decision to shut it down? Yes. And we did have this conversation. And so free speech is, you know, people love free speech, which is true. It's a tenet of it's part of the First Amendment. But free speech ends when your right impinges to speak freely impinges on others in specific ways. And PayPal is a private company. They are allowed to have terms and conditions of use, just like Instagram does, just like Facebook does. And if you've never read them, I've had to draft them sometimes. I have read Instagrams a whole lot to have to report issues on it. But they are very vocal about not providing a platform for hate or bigotry or discrimination in forms or bullying. So they are allowed to create those terms and allowed to kick anyone off who violates that. It's sort of the same thing as you hang a sign in your store saying we have the right to refuse service. Very similar to that. I mean, even if you're, you know, you can't set fire to a public building either, you know, chanting whites forever or something like that. Because yes, you could say that, but you know, it's how you say it and where you say it and what platform are you saying it. And that is the issue. Got it. So they're not allowed to. So if you have a, you have to have explicit terms and conditions of use. And if you do that, you can monitor that to the best of your ability. And so because they had that, no hate group could get through the cracks there. So that's good to know. Yes, this should be a best practice pretty much for everyone. I assume so, but I just was making sure there was no way that like hate groups could be like, oh no, that violated. I just wanted to make sure like that makes sense. So you can report it for private platforms and it's a really good idea to do that. I guess the other follow-up I had for the KKK stuff 
was that we talked in one of those two episodes about how a neighborhood in Denver was debating changing its name away from Stapleton because that was named after a KKK political member. He was also Denver's longest serving mayor, so did a lot of good things for the community and was a member of the KKK and used it to his advantage to get elected. So the follow-up to that is by overwhelming majority vote, over 65% of people in the area voted to keep the name versus 35% voting to change the name. And I just thought that was interesting. What does that say about people's thinking? I mean, on one hand, I get it, I think. You know, people are used to the status quo. They don't want to change it. They don't want to pay for it. They look at the good side of what Stapleton as a mayor offered, but to come out with such a strong vote, like that's a lot of people. And it was one of the highest turnouts in terms of voting that the area had. So to turn out with such vehemence against getting rid of a name that's associated with a hate group, I was very interested to note that. And I guess maybe they're thinking about the slippery slope. Like if we get rid of someone associated with a hate group, maybe then we're just going to erase our own history But we talked about that. Like, how far does it go? Because I get it. There was a meme out there. There were, I think it was all the people who signed the Declaration of Independence. And someone had put red dots on the faces of people who were slave owners. And it was like a trillion red dots. I mean, obviously not a trillion. I'm exaggerating. But like... That was so insightful. Right? So there are people who participated in the system, benefited from the system, worked the system of slavery, of hate, of that sort of stuff. And so how far down do you go? Do you erase all of the honor that you've given to these people who've both done good and then done bad? I mean, we are human. Or some people would say, well, we can use this as an excuse to educate about the namesake and the KKK, but what are they going to, I'm really curious, like, will they have a pamphlet for everyone who buys a home in the neighborhood saying, by the way, this is named after this. It's an opportunity to educate yourself or put a banner up. I don't know what the plan is next, but I find it interesting that so many people did not want to change the name. Yeah, that seems like I felt like it would be a lot closer when we talked about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. And if people are willing to talk about the history and discuss it, then you know what? That's great. It does provide that excuse and reason to do it. But I don't know if people are going to do that. I don't think that that's necessarily why they voted to not change it. And so there we are. Updates on that episode. Moving right along out of hate in the form of white supremacy for a hot second. Pastor Semenya, our first reader or listener suggested episode. Thanks again, Kevin. We just have a brief update there, Sarah, if you wanted to talk about her. Yeah. And we had posted this as a follow-up on social media. So if you didn't already follow us on social, do that. You can sign up for our email lists. But basically we had posted that, you know, she had been appealing the ruling and that she wasn't allowed to, and I guess, do we need to go over like what the ruling was? I guess basically she was appealing the decision by the court of arbitration for sport, basically, which had approved the introduction of a new testosterone limit for female athletes. And basically Castro Semenya has a sexual development difference is what it was called. And so therefore she was seen to have a competitive advantage versus other women. And so there's two sides to that story. I understand all of that. But basically, she is now, she lost the appeal. She's not able to compete. And she is still out there prepping for a different career outside of athletics and seeing where she's going. Well, I think she's actually in athletics, just not running. I think she is playing soccer, actually, in not track, but we can still watch her, which is amazing. It is amazing. And it's interesting. So how come as a team sport, there's no 
you know, problem with her participating in that versus an individual sport because the testosterone levels are still there because the whole point was she wasn't going to take testosterone reducing, you know, hormone altering medicine in order to compete. So different sports journey, huge fan, keep on doing what you're doing. She's amazing. Let's support her. Amazing. Citizenship. So just moving right along. So while, and we had an episode about the citizenship question on the census. And so while that question did not make it onto the census, at least at the time that we're recording this right now, it is still a very hot button issue. And very recently, the Trump administration announced that it's making it more difficult for the children of some U.S. service members and U.S. government employees living abroad to automatically become U.S. citizens. So what this means is that, and this rule appears to at this point primarily affect the children of naturalized U.S. citizens serving in the armed forces who have not lived in the U.S. for a required period of time which is a relatively small number at this point, estimated to be about 100 annually, according to- And we're gonna, I'm asterisking this point because I wanna come back to what you said the other day when I was like, well, then does it really matter? (laughs) Yes, but basically in a nutshell, if you are a US service member or government employee who is a naturalized citizen- So like my mom, right? Because she was born in Japan, came to the States and now is a naturalized citizen. Right. Living abroad. So you're like on a U.S., you know, you're in an embassy, you're on an army base and you have a child. That child is not automatically going to be given U.S. citizenship, which this does not impact anyone born in the United States. So my husband, who was born on an army base outside of the U.S., two military parents who are U.S. citizens would not at this point be affected by that. Let's say if he was born, you know, 10 days from now. Right. But if his parents had been born elsewhere, become naturalized citizens, and were still serving our country as naturalized citizens, he would not be allowed to be a citizen automatically. Yeah. And so I get it. It's a small, you know, number of people. But what you said scared the crap out of me because I was literally like, well, then do we need to mention this, Misasha? Because it's only 100 people annually so far. It's such a small number. Go. Scare. Go. (laughs) (laughs) I think here's the thing, though. It's only 100 right now, right? But let's say, like, you know, the Trump administration says, okay, well, you know, it applies to naturalized citizens who haven't been living in the U.S. for a certain period of time. Let's say it applies to all naturalized citizens. Let's say it just applies to, you know, anyone who's a citizen living abroad. So I think that's the issue. And you talked about slippery slope earlier. I think this is a slippery slope in this instance that we need to be really scared about because we know that citizenship is a big question right now and that who is a citizen and how you become a citizen and what does it mean to be a citizen is really not just under scrutiny, but under attack in a lot of ways. So I think it's very important to watch this and to be concerned about this because it has the potential for being much bigger than it is right now. That was much less scary when you were like, and Nazi Germany, how did that start? It just starts with small things. I know. Well, I figured I'd save that for later. But yes, it is a very small thing. Like, you know, suddenly you single out a group of people, you make them wear a star. And I'm not saying at all that this is the start of, you know, a Holocaust or that this is on the scale of that by any means. But I think it's very scary when you start to just single out small groups of people, you know, for whatever reason that is not really grounded on anything besides a characteristic that they have, be it race, gender, here, citizenship. So, And then 
Moving on to other uplifting topics. The treatment of refugees at the border. Yay. The administration has taken steps to end protection for migrant medical care by eliminating a protection that lets immigrants remain in the country and avoid deportation while they or their relatives are receiving life-saving medical treatments or enduring other hardships. So that was what the immigration officers said to letters to families this month. And I just, like, you probably couldn't hear it, but it was just like a gigantic sigh from me because... You know, this decision, and critics have said this, is has been characterized as a cruel change that could force desperate migrants to accept lesser treatments in their poverty-stricken homelands. Because a lot of times people are coming here for, you know, a better life, a better chance. And there's some specific examples here. Mariela Sanchez, a native of Honduras who recently applied for this special exemption, said a denial would amount to a death sentence for her 16-year-old son, Jonathan, who suffers from cystic fibrosis. They are among many families who settled in Boston to seek care at some of the nation's top hospitals. And she had arrived with her in the U.S. with her family in 2016 and had previously lost a daughter to the same disease years ago after doctors in her home country failed to diagnose it. So as a mother, you're just like, oh, my God, she's lost one child. We know that this is a disease that often claims children before they're 21 years old. And this disease is hereditary and affects the lungs and the digestive system and has no cure. So she knows that if they had stayed in Honduras, her son would be dead. And she says that she has panic attacks over this every day. And I feel like as a parent or as someone, when you have a loved one who is suffering and you know that there's a chance that they can get better, you want to do what it takes. But this policy change, which was effective August 7th, affects all pending requests, including from those seeking a renewal of the two-year authorization and those applying for the first time. The only exception. I was going to say the two-year authorization renewal is the part that kills me even more because you've already had a taste of the help and the support and the medical care. And then you're told like, well, arbitrary time limit, get out. God, like that would be especially difficult. And as you were going to say, I know, sorry, I cut you off, but the only exemption is for military members and their families. So many times on social media, you or even in the mainstream media, you have these miracle stories that are so uplifting and inspiring where doctors, you know, people fund kids in foreign countries who have some massive tumor and the only, you know, help is these doctors in the U.S. who can do it and they raise all this money and they get the kids over here and they do these miracle surgeries that really help them and everyone's so inspired and aren't we doing good for the world by cross-border support? People love that. And yet the idea of then for certain types of families actually, unless it has that kind of dramatic story, we're not going to allow them into the country is very, very difficult. Like what is, allows certain kids with enough media support to fly in and get that kind of support? You know, I've seen cases of like those kids with huge tumors on their faces or their teeth are, you know, growing out of their ear. I don't even know, like, like really, really odd or unique medical conditions that need some support that they cannot get in their home country. It seems very arbitrary to me. And yet I know there are kids in our country who don't get medical care that they need too. So I'm really torn on this one. I think what for me is really hard is that basically if we take this policy at face value, we are deporting children who have cancer, among other things. And that to me is heartbreaking because I totally understand your point. I think, you know, we have a lot of issues with our healthcare system here, but to look at a child and be like, mm, if we send you home, you will die and do it anyway, that to me is like a humanitarian failure. 
this policy was also hatched by the U.S. CIS, which is that same agency that just announced that citizenship, the change to citizenship. And notably, this agency is headed by Ken Cuccinelli, who is a former Virginia attorney general. He is a longtime anti-immigrant, anti-LBGTQ ideologue, and he's also a birther who once proposed legislation to make speaking Spanish on the job a fireable offense and defended a state law prohibiting sodomy, among other things. So I think he's probably real in touch with the humanitarian aspect of this, but I think it's really important that we watch what this agency is doing because it has the power to impact a lot of people, U.S. citizens. And Do you know what it stands for? United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Oh, so not ICE. No. So it's basically, it affects everyone. Yeah, it does policies. It is the agency who handles, obviously, citizenship questions. It handles immigration. So it touches everyone, basically. Got it. And it's interesting. I mean, I don't know the answer to the immigration situation. There certainly is. There has to be some changes. I don't know what the humane solution is for a lot of this stuff or what is a reasonable thing to do. But it doesn't seem like championing unhealthy death like all of that stuff and the stuff that's let alone the situation that is actually still happening at the border holding families refusing people to like let them shower feeding them expired food not giving them medical care like there's still that actual thing physical holding condition that's happening at the southern border so there's a lot of work to be done there and i like the organization like you mentioned the southern poverty law center you've always been involved with them and supported them a lot but they're filing lawsuits to try to make these conditions better it's still a battle so i think we can't look away we can't be like oh it's old news i think we're gonna segue from here into a very different discussion but one thing i learned this summer and we'll talk more about that in a second is the power of a single person to make change, especially if that single person is in the majority, because this will become more relevant in a second. But when we were traveling this summer, there was a small town in Tuscany where, as I was reading about it, it said there in Italy, it was fascism during World War II under Mussolini. That was really a big thing. And obviously, Mussolini was a huge supporter of Hitler. And they basically, this small town had run the fascists out. So the next day, the Germans came and were like, you know what? We're going to shoot everyone in this town just to make a statement. So they lined everyone up outside the town walls. But that town survived. And it was due to one person, the German wife of one of the townspeople. So she was able to come in, take a stand, and basically... I guess the Germans saw another German standing up and decided, you know, that day that that was not going to be the fate for that town. So it was the power of one person in the majority to make a big change. Yeah. Which ties totally into what we're doing here, because when we're talking about race, we need people in the majority to stand up and speak up and continue to learn and educate and be curious. We have to hold that space and the same way for you know sexism we need men to stand up men who are in the majority to stand up and fight for what we perceive as right for equality and access and all of those things so yeah i guess it can be a literally life or death situation is in the case of that town and that german woman and you never know where our country is going so going back to your see something say something i think it's important that 
we don't do what we told our kids to do. I tell my kids all the time, don't interrupt me, don't interrupt me. But I think if I see unhealthy patterns in other, we're allowed to interrupt. As adults, I think it's important, even if you take a moment, but you see something that's not right, it's okay to interrupt that pattern and to speak up because we know how to speak respectfully. We know how to do this, but we have to interrupt yeah, the situation. True. So in a departure from our normal <laughs> history lesson, I guess, for lack of a better term, I want to talk about our summers because we both did a lot this summer. We traveled, we read, we watched, we learned, we did a lot of things. But Misasha. Yeah. I love that we get the chance to interview each other briefly about this because I wish I had thought about answers better. Yeah. Well, here you are on the spot. So let's go. This is not the speed round that you gave me the other day, by the way. This is like a little bit calmer. All right. So Sarah, in your summer, what's one takeaway either related to what we talk about on this podcast or not from your travels? So one there's stuff for me, but I think one of the most poignant moments happened actually with my kids. We went to Hiroshima. I've mentioned in a past episode, one of my kids is really into history. And I thought, well, you know, we're in Japan. Let's go and take a trip to a place where the U.S. and Japan intersected in a really horrifying and impactful way. We went to the Hiroshima A-bomb, like we saw the A-bomb dome. And we went to this museum that is in that area that talks about I mean, everything like I guess the biggest it's seared into my memory because as we were going through this museum, my kids are eight and ten. Like they do not patiently read everything at a museum. They do not take their time. They kind of rush through stuff. And I turned around and they both were in these like positions, sort of self-comforting, right? Arms crossed. One had her hand on her cheek, staring at each exhibit and reading the plaques and taking it all in because these were exhibits of kids mangled tricycles that survived the atomic bomb. The stories of kids who were out doing some stuff with their school when the bomb was dropped and how their clothes were tattered, blood, how they got separated from their families, how they refound, like, it was a lot. I probably shouldn't have taken my eight-year-old. It's probably a little bit too much for her. But it was so poignant because we have a president right now who sort of casually suggested dropping a nuclear bomb in the hurricane in order to maybe change its path. Or we have North Korea and we have Iran. Like we have a lot of the nuclear stuff coming up nowadays too. And it was the first time I felt like my kids went from like intellectually understanding what war does and the horrors of nuclear warfare. And I could see in that moment, in that sort of dramatically dark museum exhibit that they got it like they felt it in a way I mean I felt it too I mean we were crying and we talked it was just really really powerful and I got to talk to them about like and that's why we're nice to one another that's why we try to understand other people's perspectives in our day-to-day life so we don't get to that point of needing to be so powerful that we destroy people in order to get what we want so that was really impactful yeah I've been to that museum I think the first time I was there I was 11 And yeah, it's... And they changed it. They've updated it because I went there when I was a kid too. And they have updated it so much. I don't know if it's before the Olympics happen next year, but like it was even more insanely powerful. I couldn't believe it. It was really, really crazy. Like they still have the exhibit where like the marble front of the museum where the shadow of the guy like who disintegrated. Yeah, that was still there. But a lot of the other stuff was new and they pulled it out from the archives. It was insane. It's so worth going to. So that was one takeaway of like oh my god conversations and war and why all the little stuff we do now matters but how about you 
So, well, besides my German wife story, which was super powerful, I think taking my kids to various places this summer because, you know, and we are very privileged and very blessed to be able to do this as I'm like staring at you through Skype to go to Japan to see family and to go to Italy. Total side note for all the listeners who are not also on our email and social, we got our kids met each other for the first time in Japan this summer. We got together for like two hours for coffee. They've never met each other. And we are like, the closest of friends for what several decades now when our kids finally met each other across the freaking world like what the hell is wrong with us anyway i'm sorry to interrupt that was a fun moment when i got to see you no you can for those listeners who really want to know what sarah did after we <laughs> met up you should ask her directly about the shiba inu cafe she's open to discussions about that let's just very short synopsis. It's not what you think it is. So it is not what the pictures showed either. So yes. But I think for my kids being in a place where they could not speak the language, and I'm not just talking about Japan because they're kind of starting to speak that language, but in Italy, you know, and for them, I think it was very eye-opening and they really understood in a very visceral way what it was like to be on the outside. And also there were not black people in Italy. So we were very openly stared at. And I didn't really think about it either. And but we were traveling with a couple who where the man is Indian and the wife is Spanish from Spain. And so we were just like a huge bunch of mixed race tourists all in this small town. And I think everyone definitely knew who we were. But I think to see my kids understand what it's like to not be you know, the majority English speakers, even though they're not, you know, in the majority in a lot of ways in this country, but also to understand what it's like to be Americans abroad, I think was very impactful for them and for me to see that. That's why I like that my kids are half Canadian because I don't want to be an American abroad half the time. <laughs> Is that awful that I just said that out loud? Anyway, besides, you know, your takeaway, what was your favorite place that you were this summer? We had a wicked cool summer. You know, we have structured our lives where we've always told the kids we prioritize spending our money on travel and good food. Like that's what we spend our money on and books. And so we really went all in this summer. I think the favorite places, there were two sort of buckets. One was that we spent a lot of time with family, like extended family, you know, going to visit my in-laws in Canada and being at their place. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And it was probably one of our best summer visits where everybody got along, the kids, it was just easy. And it was so nice to be with our Canadian family. We also had a huge family reunion on my dad's side. I mean, he died 15 years ago. So to see his brothers for the first time in ages, and then my whole, my brothers, my mom, everybody came out. So that was really cool as well. We did that sort of more like in the mountains of Colorado with my aunt and uncle who graciously hosted us. And that was so impactful too, because that was like a dose of mortality to one of my uncles has Alzheimer's and to sort of see and remember that we don't live forever, that it's important to be connected to family. Like those two buckets of family time were so good for my soul. And then for the first time in, I don't know, like a decade, we went on a beach vacation. Like our family has spent this money on travel for so long, but we usually and almost exclusively do it to see family. We live so far apart from our extended family that we always spend our free time and money to go there. And we actually went on a vacation with good friends. And we went on, like, it was vacation. We went to the beach in Mexico. And I can't remember the last time it was just like, truly 
chill, our space, our pace, you know, relaxing. And that was an eye-opening. It was nice to just disconnect and be together with our family because we also, I mean, it was a crazy summer. But we did travel a lot and I sound um, kind of ridiculous too at the number of places that we went to. So I feel really grateful. I feel really lucky. It was really, 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 really busy. I wouldn't do it at that pace again. I think by the end of August, we realized my John was home. My husband was home for five whole days straight. Like we were home as a family for five whole days straight with no visitors. And it was the first time at the end of August that that had happened since May. So it was busy, but man, we got a lot of stimulation and thoughts and experiences. And I have so much to say about all of it, but we learned a lot. It was really cool. So how about you? I mean, you talked about some of your places. Where was your favorite place? I mean, it was so nice to go back to Japan because spending so much time there growing up, spending working there. You know, I remember we were just talking about how 20 years ago, I'm not going to go into large amounts of detail because I believe relatives of ours listen to this podcast. But, you know, but to go back there, because I hadn't gone back since my second son was born. So it was so nice to go back and see family because we aren't that big of a family there. And I really want my sons to understand where they come from. So that's why we go back to see my husband's family in the holidays every year. That's why I want them to take Japanese classes and to so to see them with my family and, you know, uncles, aunts, and same thing like your family. My oldest uncle is 80 and was hospitalized actually while we were there. So it was a chance for them to really meet and understand that part of themselves. And for me to see that it just felt very much like home in some ways. And apparently my aunt and cousin listened to our podcast, even though I don't think they understand a lot of the English at the pace that we speak it at, but they seem to get the premise. So that was big. So we have some international listeners. So I would say Japan or actually our backyard, oddly, because we got new patio furniture and this was the first year that we were really outside a lot, grilling and hanging out and it felt like summer. That's really cool. I'm looking forward to that next summer, just being home. I will remind you of this in February when I feel like you're going to tell me all the things you're going to do. I'll remind you. Okay, so final question for you. What is one of the best books, movies, or shows that you read or watched this summer? Okay, so I'm going to call myself out on this. I am not like a sit down and listen or watch kind of thing because I don't really listen to many other podcasts. So MK Brooks, I'm calling you out on this right now. MK Fleming, I guess is your name. I'm sorry. The Morning Mantra and like your podcast is awesome. You're incredibly supportive. We love you. And I can't bring myself to listen to many things. I don't watch shows when my husband's traveling, though I will say we finally finished Game of Thrones together when he was home and that was pretty darn awesome. And I read way too many books this summer to name just one that I loved. So... Like that would just take a while. So how about you? So I do love podcasts, but I love a specific genre of podcasts and it's true crime. So I'm a crime junkies, the murder squad, like I really, people, I think definitely my husband thinks I have a serious problem. But sometimes when you see the darkest side of humanity, you can also understand the helpers or the light side as well, I think. So basically everything I watched was kind of related to that too. Like Mindhunter, season two, it's fantastic. But for books, I also read a ton. I have Kindle Unlimited, so it's great. But then once you- You're also the fastest reader on the planet. You're freaky, okay? Well, 
Okay, so the problem with Kindle Unlimited is you read a couple books in a certain genre, and then Kindle Unlimited, through its analytics, thinks it knows you. So there was a period of time where it was only recommending World War II female resistance, like, fighter books. Have you read The Nightingale? Yes. So, like, if it's a World War II female resistance fighter book, I've read it because Kindle Unlimited recommended them all for me. Suggestions about other genres, I'm open to that because I've really exhausted that. But yes, that's sort of my... Have you read Sarah's Key? Yes, and I... Okay, I'm not going to play that game anymore. That book, oh, that is one of those books that you can't get out of your head. Like, just, I can't go into it because, like, when we were learning about World War II history in Italy this whole summer, I was thinking Sarah's Key. So, and that didn't even happen in in Italy. So yes, I clearly. That was pretty good. I did totally flip genres. I read Rachel Hollis's Girl Stop Apologizing as part of Book Club. I wanted to not like it, but I liked it. It was really good because one of the things that they said was as women, one of the things we need to let go of is the need to benchmark our success based on the happiness of people around us. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's freeing. You're right. Yeah. So that was cool. I did also read for book club, Three Women, Three Ladies. And then The Immortalists, I just finished reading actually last night. It was really good. Oh, I do like that one. Oh, and The Great Alone, Anything Kristen Hanna is amazing. Oh, yes. Anyway, I'm going to read next. I got sent a book by one of our listeners, Waking Up White. Yes. And so that is on my list to read. Or in fact, I have started reading it. I just can't find it at my desk at the moment, but... (laughs) Well, speaking of books and listeners and all of that, I think this is a nice segue to invite you guys to tell us about your summers. We would love to hear, you know, any of your big takeaways from your summers. So please email us, hit us up on social, tell us your answers to any of the questions we asked each other. But even more exciting is our fall plans. So as we record this, we are heading into a big powwow this weekend where we get to see each other again, which is super exciting. But you'll definitely want to stay tuned to hear more of what we're planning for fall. So that's going to include deeper dives into issues that we think are key for the upcoming election cycle. We're going to be guest appearing on several podcasts, so we will be sure to keep you posted about those. We have some potential live podcast episode ideas and much more. Did someone say swag? Yep, that might be it too. So how do you stay in touch with us? You, We would love it if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to our website, Dear White Women. Dot com. You can subscribe to our email list. You can also link to the episodes from there. Please also, if you have a chance and you're feeling generous, rate and review us. Those ratings really do help and no review is too little or too small. So please. And thank you. Thank you. More soon. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast, and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. <laughs>